All right, this morning, we're still on verse 9. We had an interesting discussion last week about these strange teachings, and I pointed out the word strange because the word xenos, which means foreign. And I tried to give an overview of this section so that we have a, a good picture of what's going on. And I'll do that again. Because it's a little difficult to understand if you don't realize what analogy is being made and what points being made. So it says, uh, starting with verse 9, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, the point here, the overall point is the camp would be the Jewish uh, religious services that were tied to the temple. That's the camp as he's using it here. Um, and outside the camp would be Christ, because he was crucified on Golgotha outside the city. All right. And so, figuratively speaking, when we come to Christ, we're going, we're, we are going outside the camp that is outside the Jewish religion. And the food issue was based, and I'm going to read a bunch of quotes about this, but the food issue was based on this idea that was very common in Judaism that that their meals, that they could somehow, uh, their meals themselves, every kind of meal that they had, was a means of grace. And the point being made here is that outside of Christ, there's no means of grace. And Jewish cultic meals, and remember the term cultic we're using technically to mean as prescribed within a certain religion, not in a negative sense like we normally use it in English today. But in theology, they use the word cultic in a specific sense, not pejorative. But in that sense, those meals that they thought were, were where they found God's grace were not able to mediate grace to them because grace only comes through Christ. All right? And so this has to do with the means of grace. And I'm going to quote some from William Lane's just absolutely brilliant commentary on this. And, um, but first of all, let's go back to verse 9. Do not be carried away by strange teachings. So strange here would be foreign teachings that um, were not a part of the body of revealed material that we received from Christ, bearing in mind Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 and Hebrews 2, 1 through 5, that Christ is the one who gives the authoritative teaching under the new covenant. He's the new, he's the new Moses. And his teachings were also given through his ordained apostles. They're still Christ's teachings. The teachings of the apostles are Christ's teachings because he gave them those teachings and ordained that they give them to us. And you get that idea from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 and Hebrews 2, 1 through 5 and thereabouts. Okay, Christ and his apostles. I'm going to be talking about that in the sermon this morning. We're going to talk about what true prophecy is. That every believer can prophesy. What does that mean? We'll talk about that this morning. But it starts with this body of inspired, inerrant, authoritative teaching 
that draws the boundaries for us under the new covenant. So inside those boundaries, are we have means of grace. Inside the boundaries, we find salvation. Inside the boundaries, we find sanctification. Inside the boundaries, we find what is pleasing to God and what will change our lives and what God will use uh, for evangelism and so forth. Outside the boundaries, now the boundaries are drawn out by Scripture, you find strange teachings. Heterodoxy. Uh, that which is foreign. Okay? And I'm going to talk about that in my sermon, that in the Old Testament, Moses was the lawgiver. He, God drew the boundaries through Moses. The prophets, certain individuals the Holy Spirit came upon, had various roles, but one of the roles of the prophets was to uh, enforce the law of Moses by seeing when they were breaking it and rebuking kings or whoever they had to rebuke because they were breaking the law of Moses. And my claim is going to be that under the new covenant, every believer has that same prophetic role. Every believer. Because we all have the same body of material and we may all prophesy. And that is to say, here's the boundaries and whoever it may be. It may be there's no church leader that has the right to go outside the boundaries. So the seemingly lowliest person in the congregation can come and rebuke the senior pastor if they see him going outside the boundaries. And this is authoritative prophecy saying, this is what the Lord says. So I'm getting ahead of myself. That's going to be the sermon. But I, I just want the idea in our minds. Well, I was going to say, from Moses' time to now, those boundaries for fleshly man, that's never been good enough. They've always had to go outside the boundaries. It's, it's just never... Right, because it's, it's an issue of the authority of God in our lives. And whether God has spoken, and whether what He's spoken is authoritative, whether what He's spoken is... Uh, powerful and life-changing. And now, with the emerging church, the, the issue is whether any words that anybody speaks mean anything. And so if you deny that words can convey meaning, then you just destroyed the clarity of Scripture. And so the Bible becomes a religious object rather than words spoken by God that we can know and we can uh, feel safe within and we can grow within and we can know where we're getting in trouble because we went outside. Yes. When, you, when you say that we can all prophesy, can you explain the two different ways that word is used? Well, I'm going to do that in my sermon. Oh, okay. I'm just giving you a preview. A <laughs> I'm giving you a foreshadow. See, that's a good literary device. All right. I am very excited about this sermon. I, I, I'm hoping that it comes out as well. I, I spent all week working on this. It's, I think it's important. Uh, Thessalonians says, uh, do not... Um, it says that we shouldn't despise prophecy. But, but actually, I think through much of the history of the church, it's been very difficult to define what Paul meant by prophecy. So I'm going to do it, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm going to give you some really good evidence that I'm not. Okay? I think that the reason prophecy is, is, is either misused or rejected altogether is because it isn't understood what it really is. Okay, but now within this boundary set by Christ and His apostles, we find grace. All right? So these strange teachings are, according to William Lane, and I'm going to quote some of his things because he gives a lot of good evidence. He has like three pages just on this one verse that 
the strange teachings had to do with Jewish ideas about food. And that food, it's, that the meal itself was a means of grace. And, and so they're tempted to go back to that idea rather than finding this means of grace through Christ. And so it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. All right, so that's what we're talking about. Where does grace come from? Not by foods. Though those uh, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. So what he's saying is eating these cultic meals without Christ cannot benefit you. And there was benefit, of course, under the Old Covenant when they were doing according to the law of Moses in faith. All right, God did bring grace. But once Christ came outside the camp... <laughs> And you have to go outside the camp to Christ. You can't stay inside the camp without Christ and think you get grace by meals. So that's the simple version of this whole argument in these four verses right here. Just so that we don't get lost uh, in the forest and not see the trees, I guess. Um, let me give you a few citations uh, from the material that William Lane gleaned from all kinds of uh, very interesting Jewish sources and, and what have you. Okay, he says this, The word that the former leaders proclaimed is now threatened by teaching that is inconsistent with the message of the community had received, that is, from the apostles. In reality, they divert the heart from the grace mediated through the word of God, which the former leaders preach and which always remains valid. So our claim is that God's grace is mediated through His Word primarily and what other means His Word ordains, like fellowship, prayer, communion, things that we talk about here. It is, it is not to be thought that they disparaged the grace of God. It is that they had another conception of grace and of the relationship of grace to provide prescribed foods than does the writer of Hebrews. More particularly, the teachings called into question the conviction that the heart can be strengthened through grace alone. Very important concept. Grace alone is one of the five solas of the Reformation. And, and we have been talking about that. And some of you read the book by Boyce on, on, me, on grace. Or I mean, actually, on the five solas. And I wrote an article about that. It did so, quoting, back quoting Lane, it did so by commending the strengthening of the heart through prescribed foods or meals. There's an obviously connect, uh, connection between the phrase various strange teachings in 9a and a reference to prescribed foods in 9b. All right, so the assumption is the foods give you the grace. The members of the house church are warned not to allow themselves to be led away from the foundational instruction they had received by various configurations of competing teaching. In other words, don't let those teachings take you away. When various strange teachings from itinerant teachers and prophets arise, they must not be permitted to challenge the firm conviction of a dependence on Jesus Christ and his high priestly ministry as um, diversified and enticing they may be. This is what Lane said. This is just as true today as it was in the first century. We can't allow ourselves to be drawn away from that which is powerful, that which is central, that which is given to us by Christ, through His Christ alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, and these things are to be the foundation of a Christian community. 
This is the foundation of fellowship. This is what, how we encourage one another and exhort one another and pray for one another and fellowship one another is around this, these true means of grace and the strange teachings. Now, if there was a problem with strange teachings in the first century when they didn't have the television, the radio, and the internet and publishing houses and the printing press, can you imagine how much problems we have with strange teachings today? There's, a, there's dozens of more ways for them to come in. The only way they could come in to the house church here was somebody had to go physically there with the teaching. Right? Now they come through from every conceivable medium. And they bombard every Christian. Now, because of that, it is the duty of Christian leaders to guard every single flock against these things. And we have to deal with them. And the strange thing is, and I'm going to talk about this again in the sermon, is that there's a whole, uh, I would just say it, uh, kind of a ethos out there that says it's really bad to correct false teaching. That's a very, it's very sinful to correct false teaching. You hear that all the time. I get nasty emails. How dare you correct false teachers? Why don't you just be positive? In fact, Jan heard that Saturday before we went on the air and it kind of upset her. We, or no, Thursday. Remember Thursday? We did the thing on when is the time to leave a church? Well, there was somebody there at the station that I won't mention who saw Jan and said, Jan, what are you, what are you going to do on your show? And she gave the different topics and he says to her, why, why don't you lighten up and do something positive? <laughs> and so Jan and I said, yeah, well, that's just the problem. We got Christianity light, happy talk, Christian happy talk. And why can't we just all get along? And this is, they don't get it. They don't get it. That these, these heterodox teachings, these strange teachings that aren't emphasizing grace of God through the person and work of Christ, are a threat to the spiritual well-being of every single Christian. And if the itinerant false teachers had to be resisted in the time of Hebrews, how much more do we have to resist the airwaves and the print and the radio and the TV and everything else that's bombarding us? And it's no wonder people are confused. Look at all the various things that they're hearing from every possible source. You were just telling me about one, Brian. Somebody... Somebody set the wrong date for the Lord's return, and so he said that was wrong, and now he's setting another one? It's unbelievable. Yes, Dan. Well, a billion Catholics today are having the meal of transubstantiation, trying to get grace to get to heaven. And evangelicals, including Billy Graham, holding hands with these gentlemen and, and ministerial alliances, which I see, they may give the gospel in the paper, which I see, the next minute they're hopnobbing with these characters that don't give the gospel, which is it? You either stand, you either please man or you please God. And this meal of transubstantiation is the unbloody sacrifice of the mass. It doesn't give any grace because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So this unbloody sacrifice, which a billion people are going to get grace, which I try to want to die at the communion meal, this fake meal, and either the evangelicals are holding hands with the Catholics, and all oh, we're big buddies, but then put the gospel in the paper, but not stand up for it. And this meal will send you to hell, because you better come through Jesus Christ, 
That's the meal, the bloody sacrifice, the one who rose from the dead to save your soul within the boundaries. In Jesus' yeah. name. Yeah, I agree. Transubstantiation is a false doctrine. That's their meal. Yeah, it is. That's You're right. Here, here back to Lane, he says, the plural form, uh, didakais, didakais, teachings, which occurs only here in the New Testament, this actual form, the word didakais in the New Testament, suggests the polyvalent and polymorphous nature of human traditions. What does that mean? Polyvalent and polymorphous. Well, it means going in different directions and taking different forms. Okay? Going in different directions and taking different forms. Human traditions are uh, all the, going in every which way. <laughs> all right? And uh, in contrast to the singular character of the Word of God. All right? So the Word of God is always the same. The traditions of man are going in every which direction. And they take different forms throughout church history. So strange teaching is a pejorative term. He says... Um, He talks about Second Temple Judaism and the background of their understanding of grace through foods. Uh, the cultic, again, not using this term in a bad sense, cultic meaning within their religious system, background of many of the biblical statements concerning God's grace can be found in the thank offering with the acclamation, praise God because He is God and His grace endures forever. The goodness and grace of God saved those who were in peril and supported those who were wavering. They and their guests experienced goodness and grace of God. And that was a biblical idea. And then he goes on. What can be discerned is a pattern consisting of the blessing of God, thanksgiving in response to the experience of the grace of God, and petition. The participation, participants in the meal obtain joy through eating and drinking so as to praise God with power. Um, the general acknowledged diction was, quote, now this is a Jewish tradition, there is no joy without eating and drinking, unquote. In Jerusalem, this joy was experienced at the sacrificial meal times. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord God. Um, Deuteronomy 27.7. Now, when the sanctuary does not exist, it resides only in wine. It is said, wine rejoices the human heart. Psalm 104.15. This was the basis for the conviction that God can be praised properly only when people are strengthened through the feast of joy. It is accordingly a religious duty at such a feast to satisfy oneself with eating. Now, this is all giving the Jewish background, right? So the idea was, the if they couldn't be in Jerusalem and they couldn't go to the temple and they couldn't, you know, participate in that way because they were scattered, they were in a diaspora. They came up with the idea that every meal we have is a sacrificial meal, and this really wasn't such a bad idea because they had some biblical basis for it. So they would bless God, they would enjoy their meal together in their Jewish setting and believe that in their eating and drinking together with their Jewish brethren, they were experiencing God's grace from far away. All right? But the problem was that when Christ came and fulfilled all that, and he said, my flesh is life for the world and my blood is drink, not meaning transubstantiation, but meaning his once for all sacrifice. And they rejected that and decided that their meals were enough grace for them. They didn't need Christ. That's the problem. All right. Now, uh, Denise, could you look up Psalm 104, 14 and 15? Because that's sort of the basis of this in the Bible, of the idea of the foods. Psalm 104, 14 and 
Yes. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. So the various things that they found from which they found sustenance, the food from the earth, wine, bread, oil, what have you, these were God's gift to sustain man, according to the Jewish understanding. But it, it took on this idea of a means of grace beyond uh, what was prescribed in the Bible. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, 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 this was a good thing if you didn't try to make more out of it than it is. I do like the Jewish idea of their thankfulness at meals and, and their blessing of meals. And you learn about that when you go to the, uh, the thing that Carl does once a year, the, the biblical dinner or whatever they call it now. And here, here is the blessing, the Passover, the Seder, where he explains Christ in the Passover. But here's what they said at their meals. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. <laughs> that was their blessing. And it was based on Psalm 104, 14, and 15. All right? Every Jewish meal possessed a cultic character. There is, there is merely a distinction of degree among ordinary meals, Sabbath meals, and the Passover meal. The purity of the foods, and especially the recalling of the grace of God, sanctify all fellowship mealtimes. And so in a Jewish sense, every meal is a fellowship with God and one another. And um, moreover, the table prayer after the meal, the birak, no, yeah, birkat, oh well, I'll forget that one, shows how the concepts of grace and of eating were brought together in Jewish thinking. It was appropriate to connect every meal with Psalm 104.15, since Psalm 104.14, bread to strengthen the heart, was recited as a blessing at the beginning of every meal. Special meal times in the Old Testament and Judaism were regarded as occasions for festive joy, which in turn prompted the giving of thanks or the recital of God's grace. This way, such meals recalled the thank offering of the temple for Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem or the land of Israel. The association of eating with giving of thanks became more important. Those who had not personally experienced the redemptive character of the grace of God found in the provision of food for the meal always a fresh demonstration of the grace of God. So, uh, all of that is, a, is basically a good thing, but what was bad in Hebrews was they thought, we'll leave Christ and go back to that. That our, that our meals is all the grace we need. And that becomes a very wicked teaching. Because in Christ alone, we find salvation and we find true mediation of the grace of God. And so, John 6, Jesus basically says, only through me. Amen. Only through me. And almost everybody left following him in John 6, except for the 11. Right? Because they were, they were offended at, at the teaching that Christ gave. Now, I have some more material. I'm sorry to quote so much, but this is so good, I have to share it with you. And, and it's, Lane is too expensive. Everybody's going to go buy it and begin to find it. Did you get Lane? Is it good? Absolutely. <laughs> you need your dictionary? Yeah, it'll give you a headache if you don't have a dictionary. It's, it's written for kind of seminary crowd. At the same time, it was a sober reminder that ultimately one can thank God fully for redemption only through the thank offering and fellowship meal in the presence of the altar in Jerusalem. So they knew that, but, and they, but they couldn't get there, so they had their other meals. The writer of Hebrews rejects this line of argumentation. He declares that the grace of God was not mediated through celebrating of cultic meals. 
It was useless to imitate the sacrificial meals in Jerusalem as the Jews of the diaspora sought to do. The church will not find security in such earthly assurances. On the contrary, the grace of God is bestowed through the word of promise concerning the redemptive efficiency of the death of Jesus, Hebrews 2.9, and through prayer, Hebrews 4.16. At their altar, 13.10, Christians participate in a sacrifice far superior to the Jerusalem sacrifices. They have not yet attained the festive Sabbath joy reserved for the new people of God, Hebrews 4.9, which that will be in heaven. They have assembled themselves outside the camp, Hebrews 13.13, 13. nevertheless through Jesus their high priest, his sin offering and his thank offering, they now enjoy access to the real heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Those who merely praise God for food and for graciousness exhibited through it, but not for the grace within the heart mediated by the eschatological promise of the gospel, either have not received their heart, in their hearts the revelation mediated through Jesus or have forfeited grace, grace through personal carelessness, Hebrews 12, 15. Such persons are not qualified to offer the sacrifice of praise through Jesus, the high priest, Hebrews 13, 15. Christian tradition affirms that the heart is benefited by grace and not by any material measures which really are of no spiritual advantage. Okay, that's enough. Do you get the idea? All right, I, I want you to understand this. Because i got to admit, I've read through Hebrews 13, and this whole thing about inside the camp and the altar and stuff always seemed kind of cloudy to me. But now when I see this background, see the background material helps you understand what the Apostle's writing here, or what's being written by the inspired author. And so he's rejecting the idea that you can find grace through food because you have to find grace through Christ. Okay, now let's look up some passages. Uh, Matthew 24, 4. Uh, Dean and Brian, 1 Corinthians 8, 8. I already gave you one, Denise. Um, Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. And Romans 14, 17. Bob, you want to do one? Romans 16, 17 through 18. And Norm, Acts 10, 14 to 16. Uh, Barb, Colossians 2, 16 through 20. Colossians 2, 16 through 20. And Bert, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Actually, we'll find here that the Bible says an awful lot about food and warnings about wrong teachings about it. There's an email debate going on uh, between one of my CAC readers and a whole bunch of other people about, uh, and, and this guy, I think his name is McElroy, who is doing? Who started this? Rebuked this guy, some guy who wrote a book called, called the Hallelujah Diet. Yeah, he he wrote a book called the Hallelujah Diet that's claiming that you have to follow these Old Testament food laws in order to be healthy or whatever. So anyhow, this McElroy, based on one Timothy, says this is a doctrine of demons, and so he rebuked the guy for for writing for teaching doctrines of demons and demanded that he repent. And the guy refused to repent and, and sent back nasty emails. So then it came to this whole bunch of people. Are these emails going back and forth? And, 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 and my uh, CIC reader keeps going back. You're teaching doctrines of demons. You're teaching, giving them scripture and scripture and scripture. And the guy won't repent from teaching doctrines of demons. And because, this is what we're talking about. He won't stay within the boundaries drawn by Jesus Christ. 
Now, people like to teach doctrines of demons concerning food. And it's been going on. I can't tell you how many of them I've heard. Bill Gothard teaches doctrines of demons. Uh, and we're not allowed to make food laws, and we're not allowed to make some claim that if you follow certain diets, that there's some spiritual benefit. And we're not supposed to say that you have to follow the diet I say because the Bible says so, because this is a matter of Christian liberty. All right? And you can eat all the bacon you want. <laughs> Unless you've got a bad heart, maybe you better not. <laughs> but uh, that's between you and your doctor and the Lord, what, what your diet is. But there's no prescribed food in the New Testament that's going to make you holy. All right, so let's look up some of the verses. Matthew 24.4. Uh, 24.4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Take heed that no man deceive you. All right, that's, that's the command of Christ. Amen. So, it's a good thing to not be deceived. It holds us accountable. It holds us accountable. We can't just say, well, why can't we just all get along and let's just pretend all Christians believe the same thing and let's not correct any error. Let's just have this big pot of soup and let everything get in the pot. It's stew, yeah. Paul's doctrine stew all mixed together. No, don't let somebody deceive you. Now, 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Now, food itself will not cause our acceptance by God, nor commend us to him. Eating food offered uh, to idols gives us no advantage. Neither do we come short or become any worse if we do not eat it. All right, so food, it's very interesting. Food can't make us better to God, closer to God, nor can it disqualify us. All right? So, uh, Paul says you can eat anything you find in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. So I'm going to exercise that privilege. I'm going to exercise that privilege because we've got two nice juicy steaks thought out for after church today. Yes. It's also a command that we diligently search the word so we don't get lost in self-teaching. Yes. But you, it, it, sometimes they're so obvious. That's, that's what, like this one in Timothy. Forbidding certain foods which God's given is a doctrine of demons. All right? And so all this one guy is doing is applying that to this guy who's teaching that. And the guy's mad. You can't do that. I'm going to sell my Hallelujah Diet book to millions of people. I don't, don't tell me it's a doctrine of demons. But it is. <laughs> you can say Hallelujah when you eat if you want. That's fine. All right. Um, Hebrews, which one? Hebrews 9, 9 and 10? The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. According to both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Okay, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered in the old tabernacle can't make them perfect in conscience. He goes on to say the blood of Jesus cleanses us from the inside. All right, not just ceremonially on the outside. Okay, Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That basically says it right there. Well, that doesn't mean we don't have a fellowship meal that's ordained, the Lord's Supper, which we do, but we do that because Christ instituted that, and we do it according in faith according to what Christ said. So, uh, not just eating and drinking itself is not the kingdom of God. Now, uh, did I give you Acts 10, Bob? Romans 
Okay, Romans 16, 17, 18. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are now are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. Wow. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. And that's... <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like the debate I had with the emergent church. Smooth talk and all the smooth talk and nice words, but no doctrine. But that's very clear, isn't it? So Christ, or Paul said, here's the words, the teaching you have received. Don't listen to anything outside of that. Stay inside the boundaries. Same thing we were talking about. Okay, did you have Acts 10? Okay, Acts 10, 14 to 16, Norm. So Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven again. Yeah, they had all these different kind of foods that would have normally been unclean. But now they're cleansed. So, you, so uh, in fact, it says in Mark also that Christ declared all foods clean. Now, meaning not forbidden on religious grounds. That doesn't mean that if you got maggots crawling in your... something that was in the refrigerator too long, <coughs> that you should eat it. He's not talking about the fact that things might be unhealthy, but nothing is unclean ceremonially in that regard. Okay. That's what it says. Now, Colossians 2, 16 through 20. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? All right, so don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink. That's what it says. Why do they act as judge? Because they're saying you can't be religious unless you follow the rules I made. I just had an interesting conversation with somebody the other day about that. So it was a person who came to talk to me who had and trained at Bob Jones University, where they have all kinds of rules that they made up. You know, all kinds of really, really strict rules to make sure they stay separate from the world. So this guy said, well, isn't that right? I said, well, I, I would grant that a college can require rules of its students that wouldn't apply across the board, but they should admit that they're not God's rules. Right? I mean, it's like you join the Army. They can give rules for basic training while you're in the Army. I would say that's true. But if you're saying... Uh, these are the rules, and they're God's rules because I say they are, and you can't drive them from Scripture, then you made yourself to be a lawgiver, and that's sinful. It's just as sinful to be a lawgiver as a lawbreaker. There's one lawgiver, and that's Jesus Christ. And the law has been given once for all. 
And so it was interesting talk. And, and you know what? We, we must have talked for two hours. You know what was interesting about that? Is that I think we just assume that the stricter we get, the happier God is. Okay? And so uh, if we get a real strict dress code, and we get a real strict rules about food, and we get real strict about how much you have to give, and we get real strict about, oh, well, like when I was in Bible college, we couldn't go to a movie. It didn't matter what it was. It, you, I, I could not go see the Ten Commandments if it was in a theater because then I'd be worldly. And they, and they strictly enforced that rule, although most of the kids ignored it. But you had to swear by an oath that you are going to keep it. So I kept it until I graduated and I went and saw a movie. Ah! <laughs> but the, 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 the thought is, well, see, that must be good. But no, it's, it's just not true because Colossians 2, and I told this fellow, go read Colossians 2. The, the lawgivers are rebuked just as sternly as the lawbreakers. Because they're sitting themselves in the seat of God saying, I have the right to speak for God when God really hasn't spoken. And that is a power position. That's a power trip to speak for God. But if Christ has spoken for God once for all, then don't let anyone act in your judge and saying, if you're a Christian, you can't eat pork or something like that. Wouldn't work on me anyhow. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, what you just said was relative to me because I struggled for a long time with um, trying to deserve the grace of God. You know, to be good enough to be worthy of the gift that He has given to you. And be angry with myself and self contemptuous every time I would fall down. And I finally come to realize that God loves me. You know, and He has made it well. There's no way I can deserve it. Yeah, there's no way to deserve God's grace. And that's it. Yeah. That's it, and that's all inside God. Jesus, I will follow His commandments. I don't follow His commandments to say that I love Him. I follow I love Him, therefore I want You got it absolutely right, Jim. You're Jim, right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think a lot of people, the reason we struggle with this is that it's the default position of the world outside of grace. In other words, every world religion teaches salvation by works. Every last one. And so if you just let people say, here, go have your religion, you decide what you want it to be. When they get done, they'll have some system of works. You know, they, this is what we need to do for God to be happy with us. All right? And the idea that God, God did it all through Christ is the gospel. It's uniquely Christian doctrine. And so my wife is trying to tell this lady who was giving up chocolate for Lent about that, and she's like, Glazes over. It's sad, really, because people serve these religions like you were talking about, Dan. You serve and serve and serve, and when you get done, you still can't know any assurance of salvation. Yes? Your Bible college forbid you from going to a film, but yet they insisted that you take an oath. Isn't there a little ironic? Yeah, they required me to take an oath that I won't go to, uh, go to the movies. Uh, <laughs> Well, it didn't help the theaters, I guess. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6. But the Spirit implicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of uh, demons. Doctrines of demons, yes. 
by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and, de and advocate abstaining from foods which God was created has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. Everything is created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with gratitude. If it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So it isn't sanctified based on what kind of food it is. It's sanctified by word of God and prayer. And everything's to receive. Everything's created by God. So therefore, it's a doctrine of demons to come up with a food law that uh, for Christians. Does that make sense? Yes. What does that mean there that it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer? Set apart, sanctified in that sense would be uh, the idea of being uh, being able to be offered to God. Okay, in other words, in the in the Old Testament idea of, of being clean meant you were not defiled, so you could go into God's presence, or it could be used for holy uses. Okay, so that that passage would su would suggest that. Those that teach that certain kind of foods are holy for holy use and others cannot be are wrong, because it becomes holy because we receive in faith and and thankfulness, not because of what it is in itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right, and it says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So the the, the sanctification is that fact that we are receiving in faith, thanking God, and not thinking we earned it ourselves. Another, another variation on that, and I was in a deliverance call, which we paid that meal, we didn't break curses. And... <laughs> to break curses? Yeah, yeah and so uh, people are super, superstitious, and this is a doctrine of demons. Notice it also says forbidding marriage. It was an interesting thing. I was talking to Brian Flynn about this, because he was listening to... Um, something he found on the internet that MacArthur gave, and he was telling me, he says, do you know the the Catholic priesthood, just how, how perverse that system is? MacArthur was talking about this. He says, if a Catholic priest becomes, uh, let's say, commits fornication and uh, or some other sexual immorality, that doesn't disqualify them from being a priest. They can just go to confession and they're okay. They can go keep being a priest. But if they get married, they're defrocked. Okay? So, think of the, the perversity of that. You can sin and be a priest, but if you do something righteous and get married, then you'll be defrocked. Now, is that a perverse system or what? And MacArthur was talking about that. And I had never thought of it that way. Don't get married. And go to confession. Isn't it? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it's a sad thing that people are caught up in that perverse system. It's a bondage. It's a millstone around their necks. And that's a doctrine of demons. Forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. Verse, well, let's go on here. I don't know how much more of that. Boy, there are so many pages of material. I don't want to bore you with it. But. I already quoted that. All right, let's go to verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And this would have been a zinger that he sent 
uh, to at, at the Judaizers. <laughs> In other words, the altar that we have is the one that was provided by Christ. And, and, and where we receive grace is through Christ. And so, those who are just doing their Jewish sacrifices outside of Christ have no right to eat of the true meal that's provided by Christ because they haven't come to Him on His terms. And so, uh, so if they're under the Old Covenant, they're really disqualified. Now, they would say, no, we have a right to eat if we do it according to the law. Now, um, Lois, if you could look up Le- Leviticus 16.27 and Lonnie, Leviticus 6.3. Well, let's find those. These are the rules about that. So the one we have is not theirs. It's a different one. Okay, when you find that, Leviticus uh, 16.27. <laughs> you need a bigger print Bible, Lois. Getting to that point. Most of us have been there 30 years earlier than that. Okay, okay I'll, I'll explain it. The, the law was this. They, when they did on the Day of Atonement, this is about the Day of Atonement, when they made the offering, the blood offering, brought in by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he brought the blood in to the holiest place on that one day, but the rest of the animal, they had no right to eat on that particular day. They did on other in other sacrifices, but that one couldn't be. They had to take, after they brought the blood in, they had to take the rest of the carcass of the animal, the, all of it, outside the camp and burn it to assure that nobody could eat that. And so that idea is the background that the book of Hebrews here is playing on because Christ died outside the camp and we go outside the camp to Christ where we can eat of the true covenant meal that they had no right to eat. That's what that was about. Okay, then Leviticus 6 and verse 30. Oh, verse 30? Yes. Okay. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten, shall be burned in the fire. Yes, that's the same idea. Okay, so that's where they have no, no right to eat as an allusion to Leviticus 6.30 and Leviticus 16.27. You want to jot those down. But here, uh, Christ is uh, the one who dies outside the camp, and the people in the serving there have no right to eat. And it's, 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 it's drawing an interesting analogy with something that was true under the Old Covenant. But he's making a kind of a Jewish homily out of it and saying, sorry, you can't eat because... You haven't come to Christ. You're disqualified. All right? Um, well, I have all kinds of things here. Uh, let me quote from Lane again. That the continuation of the text contains a reference to Golgotha in the immediate context, verse 12, indicates that the term altar is anchored in history and is employed metaphorically for the event of the sacrificial death of Christ outside the city gate. The term altar appears as a metonymy for sacrifice. In other words, the whole sacrifice, not just the altar itself. Now, Jesus' death on the cross is the source of the saving and sustaining grace by which the heart is strengthened. The consecration of the new covenant people to the service of God is affected not by cultic meals, but by the sacrifice of Jesus, um, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is not only 
fulfilled the intention of the Levitical arrangement, but superseded it by accomplishing the sanctification of the old order called for, that the old order called for, but could not effect. The writer introduces the image of an altar, not merely as a foil for the altar of sacrifice in Jerusalem, but to lay ground for the exhortation in verses 15 to 16 with the thought of bringing a sacrifice to God. So the whole idea in the context is that there is this sacrifice. Eating from the altar is a figurative expression for participating in the sacrifice. The act of eating from the altar in Jerusalem gave those who participated in the meal a share in what had transpired on the altar. The declaration that the adherents of the old cultists have no right to eat from the altar asserts that they have no share in the sacrifice of Christ on Golgotha and are excluded from its benefits. Participation in the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice is limited to those who recognize in the cross event the source of the grace by which the heart is strengthened. So, Christ alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Yes. Inside the camp and outside the camp, if we can only come to the Father through Christ, yeah. imagine the judgment on the people that are hindering or preventing that. Oh, I know. And I'm going to make a claim in my sermon that that is to quench the Spirit and to despise prophecy. Amen. All right? We're going to study the verse about quenching the Spirit, and I think that that has got to be one of the most often misused passages. And... So what I'm going to do in my sermon is I'm going to go through the New Testament to show what the work of the Spirit is and then make the claim that anything that would be a hindrance to what the work of the Spirit is, taken as revealed in the New Testament, is to quench the Spirit. Whereas most people think to quench the Spirit is not allow people to have a raucous meeting and bang off the walls and run up and down the aisles. All right. <laughs> All right, Kathy. Well, the just, I, you can, any passage can be abused, but the just shall live by faith is certainly a, a foundation for understanding of justification by faith. Now, somebody could teach a libertine doctrine and say, faith means there are no rules. That, that would be false. The, the, uh, to make this real simple, these categories have just revolutionized my thinking, and we're going to write an article about this and publish it in August. But, and I did a seminar over in St. Paul that had a PowerPoint with this material. Think of the idea of boundaries that are drawn by God. And the boundaries are determined by the words of God's authoritative spokespersons. Jesus said... You know, the word, my words will be your judge. All right? And to take those boundaries and artificially move them out and say, we're going to permit what God forbids would be licentiousness and it would be sinful. To permit, like the Corinthians, they were permitting fornication. No, you can't do that. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a sin. You can't do that. You're moving the boundaries out. You're making yourself the final authority by saying we're going to change it and move it out here. But it's also bad to move them in. <laughs> Say, we're going to forbid what God permits. 
And that one we have to also guard against because it's just as wrong and it's called a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy 4, as I said earlier. And that sometimes it mystifies Christians because of, probably because of maybe of whatever background they're from. But they honestly think, no, 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 we've got to have more rules. We've got to have more and more rules uh, for whatever reason. You can always think of, well, we can't allow our people to have TVs because they might watch something they're not supposed to on the TV. Um, yeah, and, 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 and if they're not valid, if the rules, uh, yeah, you can apply things as culture changes, but every application and implication has to be validly attached to the meaning of Scripture. And so if you want to create, use invalid implications, you can create any rule you want. You can make thousands of rules by using invalid implications. What's an invalid implication? Well, let's just, just, I had a little debate with a guy, but here's, he wanted to do all kinds of invalid implications. And so, and I got into a real debate. I said, okay, um, let's just look at it this way. What if you were a car mechanic and that was your occupation? But you might fix somebody's car who later they take their car and go to the bar and get drunk and go out as a drunk driver and kill somebody. So, by implication, you should not be a car mechanic because you're aiding and abetting evil. Now, that's an invalid implication, but that's the kind of thing that people do. They don't tend to go that far because it's too obvious, but they do things like that. And uh, Paul uh, had to clarify something in 1 Corinthians 5 when he was rebuking them, saying they should discipline a person and turn them over to Satan because they were involved in sexual immorality and the church did nothing about it. All right? But then he said, when I wrote to you earlier telling you not to associate with immoral people, I meant any so-called Christian. Because if you were not going to associate with immoral people in the world, you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, you couldn't have a job. And you could say, to, you could say uh, an invalid implication. If you work with sinners, if you work with the unsaved people, and you have to, and you're doing your job with them, and you hear them blaspheming God, and you hear about their sin and all the stuff that they do, you're likely to be tempted, so therefore you can't have a job unless you work with Christians. So somebody could make try to do that and say that, but it's not valid. How can we bring light to darkness? Oh, I, I know. And, and so this cloistering thing, but it isn't what is taught in the New Testament. And Paul says, says so. He makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 5. So my point is the boundaries are drawn by God and the tool of the scribe, and it says everyone who is in the kingdom is like a scribe who brings out old things and new things. The tool of us is to know hermeneutics because languages have meanings and meanings have implications and implications have applications. And having been trained, every one of us can be prophesying in the sense of bringing out the terms of salvation. Everyone can bind and loose. Binding and loosing is forbidding and permitting. And we can say with authority what's permitted and what isn't based on staying within the boundaries that God's drawn, neither shrinking them or expanding them. Now, are there going to be some things that we can't quite figure out? Yeah, there's, there's always going to be ethical dilemmas. Honestly, you know, ethical dilemmas are, are, are real, and you have to do some work sometimes to find the greater good or the lesser evil, however you do it. Okay? So, <laughs> if you're a Lutheran, it's the lesser evil. 
because Luther saw sin everywhere, and he said sometimes you're forced to sin, so do the least one. All right. Um, this morning we're in Second or First Thessalonians five, and um, I'm very excited about what we're going to study together. So I look forward to seeing you in the service at 10:30. God bless you.